This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we put some context behind a cultural device that is setting up John's apocalypse, seeing the ancient Olympic Games and wrestling with John's intent for the letter of Revelation. Absolutely. And before we get into that, I thought... We have now been using the same hermeneutic now for some time, kind of episode after episode, giving people the tools, just kind of introducing and then fully kind of like halfway immersing and then fully immersing ourselves into that hermeneutic and then toying with it and playing with it and exercising it and using it. We've now been using that hermeneutic. So people have the tools kind of similar to how we did Pardes in session three. We gave people the tools and then eventually we're like, hey, you can experiment with this on your own. It's not about us giving you the answers. Our answers even, they're not even right all the time. So um, you, you have the tools. Now, maybe just, I want to do something particular today that you talked about in your intro, Brent. But before we do that, maybe just flying through a, a little bit of the next couple chapters of, of at least a portion of Revelation and just... What are some of the additional layers and complexities and nuance? Because it is. Uh, we've been trying to show you that Revelation is not scary, and so we've been breaking it down and showing you the basics, the fundamentals, so that you can engage the work. But it is complex, and there are lots of layers, and there are things we haven't been pointing out that, you know, when you get ready to it, when you kind of get warmed up, when your hermeneutical muscles are stretched out, you can kind of add... A little bit more nuance, a little bit like, hey, don't forget about this and don't forget about that. And so I kind of want to, I want to do that. So I want to, I want you to read, uh, read to us from Revelation, Brent, about the trumpets, these seven trumpets. And I want us to remember that apocalyptic imagery, apocalyptic literature, can you remember the definition, Brent? Uh, apocalyptic literature is meant to bring hope to the current time and, and people. And it does that by using what? Uh, I know it's forgetting a part. Something imagery. Yeah. Symbols and images. Symbols and images. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So apocalyptic literature uses symbols and images to uh, bring and communicate a message of hope to that audience's present day. And so I want to kind of write, we've been talking about culture and text and text to context, which is definitely a part of that. I don't want to forget that there are just some basic Jewish principles, Eastern principles, and the way that they see symbols and images that we haven't been dealing with directly. I don't want us to forget about that. Going all the way back to episode zero, like all the way back to our introduction to this entire study, we talked about things like, can you think of anything relevant here, Brent? Uh, numbers. Numbers would be a big one. Um, and we haven't necessarily dealt with that uh, directly or in depth here in our study of, but those colors, um, animals, pictures, any of the, anything that can be a picture and an image, we often, especially in apocalyptic literature, we want to be aware of what's being communicated. And so as we read through here, for example, um, how many seals were there? We went through six, but there were seven. There's seven. And if you actually look at the beginning of chapter eight, you'll actually see that seventh seal. How many trumpets will there be, Brent? Seven. How many bowls of wrath will there be later in the book of Revelation? Seven. Seven. Now, seven was a number for? Completion. Completion. And so John is trying to communicate the completeness of these things. Often judgment, wrath, turmoil, chaos, strife, because that is what he is communicating to his audience. It's what they're experiencing. They're experiencing a very completeness. And some would even argue that John is trying to say there is also a finiteness to the tribulation. There is, there, it doesn't just go on for, it's not eternal. The struggle, the tribulation, the, the trial, the chaos, the war, the famine, the pestilence, these things have a, uh, uh, it's a finite amount. And yet, 
there is a completion to it. And so numbers, numbers, whenever you're seeing numbers, realize those numbers are communicating things, not futuristic things. They're communicating qualitative statements to the audience as they read it. So we've got seven trumpets, like we had seven seals, like we'll have seven bowls of wrath, all trying to communicate a completeness to the things that we, uh, not even we, but the, that, that audience was enduring under Rome's boot. So I'll probably interrupt you as you read through this, Brent, but let's just kind of like read through the seven trumpets and see what comes up. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, we're two trumpets in, Brent. What, do you see any, any number patterns here that we could point out? There's a lot of thirds. Okay, so there's a third. There's a third and a third and a third. Now, we talked about three, and I'm now realizing, you know, three, four years later, how maybe I wish I would have reworded this. Originally, we said three symbolized... Community. Community, which isn't incorrect, but maybe it communicates a, a, a bigger idea than even community. It is community, but I think, in a, I think we're going to think community just in terms of relationship. But think about relationship in bigger terms. In, in Judaism, relationship exists on three levels. Relationship with God, relationship with uh, other human beings, relationship with creation. Threeness represents shalom, a wholeness. There's a wholeness, and usually that wholeness is expressed in community, in relationships, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the, the Israelites and the Levites and the Kohanim, the priests. Usually there is a communal nature to the shalom, and yet shalom is also more than just relationships. Shalom itself can be with, with all of created order. You see Paul do this when he talks about everything above the earth and on the earth and under the earth, how many of sections do we have there, Brent? Three. There is a threeness to that. So there's always this threeness to shalom. In the Passover, when you have an egg, that egg represents shalom, and that shalom is represented by the threeness of that egg. So there is a there is a maybe shalom might have been a better maybe it wasn't the right way to start our understanding of three, but maybe our original statement of community might be somewhat limited in communicating. In this case, you see all a third, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third. You're gonna keep seeing thirds. And this whole idea of thirds communicates that shalom, it's an image, it's a picture. As every trumpet is blown, shalom is disrupted. Community is pulled apart. Order is turning into chaos. That's what's being communicated there. So why the first trumpet? It's hail, fire, and blood. So there's three elements there. And then you have a third of the earth, a third of the trees, but all of the green grass. Yeah, and I would assume there's more there that I'm just not equipped to pull out in all of its allegorical imagery. But there's got to be more. There's got to be some there. And there's going to be a ton of commentary from Christian perspectives, from Jewish perspectives. But for me, a Jewish perspective is going to matter much more than a, just somebody that's coming at it from a non-Jewish perspective. 
So there's going to be all kinds of things there. I'm not prepared to you know, give you more insight into what those things are, but excellent question because all those things absolutely matter. And especially mystical schools of both Christianity and Judaism are going to tell you that they absolutely matter. Um, just like back in Genesis and people said, well, what about all the numbers of the genealogy, the ages? What about all those little finite details? And if you remember, my answer was very similar all the way back in Genesis. Maybe it's like a chiasm. Um, and there was this like pause for me to go, like, I'm sure the numbers mean something. Um, what exactly that is, I don't know. Uh, but there are going to be some that certainly insist that there's more going on. Go ahead and give us some more. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Awful lot of threes. Yeah, and yeah, if you try to like make that literal, it just is, it doesn't work. Correct. <laughs> it's image-driven uh, literature here, absolutely. Right, like a third of the sun was struck. Okay, so the there's two-thirds of the sun left. Yep. Well, but a third of the day was without light. Well, wouldn't it just have a little bit less? Like, wouldn't it just be a little less? Sure. Intense? It doesn't work. You can't right. Can't do it that way. Although you've now just set me up for the email that somebody's going to send that I'm going to forward to you, Brent Billings. That's <laughs> going to explain to me the scientific apologetics behind why that's possible. And I will archive that email immediately <laughs> without response. <laughs> As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Three woes, by the way. Yeah, good point. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Okay, so there's going to be some midrash at play here. There's going to be, obviously, some text and context here. And there's going to be some historical context as well. And we've given you books to read, sources to study that will help fill in some of those blanks there. But there's going to be some definite um, uh, uh, things going on there in that in that paragraph. And we have the introduction of a new number with five. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, who knows if that's for sure at play here, but absolutely, it's exactly the right way to be asking questions and the right way to be thinking. Absolutely. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. 
The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. All right. Now, I uh, want to just point something out. I've read a lot of people that always love to use Revelation talk about the future, and they talk about how John is getting a vision of the future, but doesn't even know what he's looking at. So he's looking at helicopters. They look like locusts, but they have like tails like scorpions. And what he's seeing is like helicopters from Russia and all kinds of stuff. And I've heard all kinds of fun things, which is fine. That's great. Obviously, we're, we're steering us away from that kind of an interpretation. But when, when I do... S- Man, and and there's some conversation to be had about this, Brent. And this isn't just straightforward, but I'm I'm hearing a lot of imagery. Uh, I mean, obviously, text to context. I'm hearing about locusts. I'm hearing about darkness. I'm hearing about uh, blood and hail. I'm hearing about uh, at different points boils. Like, what kind of images are coming to mind when I say all those things? The Exodus. Yeah, the, the plagues of Exodus. There was a there was a, f- a mountain with fire. That was thrown into the sea. There are all these, uh, to me, I, I'm thinking Exodus just over and over and over again. Visions and references to Exodus are coming to mind, which is relevant to Revelation, you suppose? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and even like locusts. What other text comes to mind when I say locusts, Brent? Uh, John the Baptist. Okay. Well, John I mean, the I guess, Baptist? I guess that what, wouldn't, yeah. What about, uh, was there a prophet Elijah. that spoke of an army of locusts? Elijah? No. No. There was a prophet whose theme, remember at session two, the prophets, your favorite part uh, of the right. study. Somebody had their theme, their their image was locust. Joel. Joel, you got it. Is that at play here? Just some basic, these are just basic flying off the cuff observations. I haven't thought about those prophets in a while. I can't yeah. believe I came up with that. <laughs> Good work. Give us the last two. Uh, let's just let's just finish up these last two trumpets here. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. New number there. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Okay, so obviously four. Four represented for us the four corners of the earth and? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Could there be a reference here to the the, the pagan nations and the, and the fact that God's people are suffering at the hand of these pagan Gentiles coming from all four corners of the earth? I mean, you obviously could have that. Um, uh, many people have pointed out um, uh, that when you're reading John's Apocalypse, he is definitely um, using this imagery of there's 144,000 we already talked about. And then there are like 10,000 upon 10,000 twice over in this case. There is this mounting army of what seems to be God's holy righteous, which appear to be this minority, this small little group of people compared to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands that are a part of being enlisted in the army of evil. Again, a big apocalyptic backdrop, a canvas on which John is describing what his audience feels like. That's what they feel like, outnumbered 20 to 1. This is their experience. So that the actual number, if you multiply everything out, is 200 million, which is significantly more than 144,000. You better believe but it. But why does John say it the way he does? Like, is there something to to that? Like, what does 10,000 mean? What, right. What does it mean to have, like, Absolutely. twice you have it coming from both sides? Like, this. There's lots of ways to uh, yes to get some extra meaning out of it without just looking for the raw number. Absolutely. And if you think like an Easterner, you're hearing why he's wording it that way. Because you're like, oh, I'm feeling like there's a lot of people here. 
10,000 people is a lot of people, but 10,000 times 10,000, that's a lot. And not just the quantity nature of it, but the Eastern qualitative nature of what he's saying um, just definitely, yeah, comes forward. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury." The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. All right, there's some great text to context there in that last paragraph. But again, you hear what John's trying to communicate. Even in spite of all the chaos in the world, you would think everybody would be repenting and turning to God, and yet that's just not what the experience has been. So again, just giving you tools, giving you layers, giving you uh, the nuances that you can use to interact with apocalyptic literature. It's not scary. It is very. It, it can feel very complicated. But when you know what you're looking for, you can just kind of engage it head on and go about interpreting the text. For now, I want to talk about what you talked about in your introduction statement, Brent. And and it's probably a great time to break up the monotony of what we're doing up to this point and point out some very important cultural parallels that John is employing. Uh, These parallels revolve around the ancient Olympic Games. These Olympics, they've been around for a while, yes? Uh, in, in some form or another, sure. Thousands of years. All right. Started by the ancient Greeks, Olympic Games were a celebration of the Greek Olympiad, or the mythology behind all of their Greek gods, and the power of the Greek Empire. Even as the world was Romanized, those tenets carried through. Although they became much more imperially minded, rather than Greek mythology, they were kind of roped into the imperial propaganda of Rome. One of the things the games celebrated was the place of the gods. As you ran in the games, you were running to extol the glory of whatever god was being represented. Later in the Roman world, this was applied to your city and country, your tribe, if you will. Uh, You ran to prove to the world the greatness of the God of your city. Uh, And and we we can relate to this, right, Brent? We think of the Olympics today, and we connect it to nation and nationalism, not necessarily in a bad way, but we're rooting for our country, for our flag, for our tribe. Imagine if instead of the the, the modern nationality component, you had that flag was instead of God. You are from the God of, you know, the, the city whose God is Zeus. That kind of idea. Or Jupiter. Uh, It cannot be overstated that your performance at the games was tied to the God that you represented. Not your individual talent as we are used to seeing today. Like when I watch, you know, Michael Phelps today swim. That's going to be dated here because he's probably done with his Olympic Games. But you get the idea. I, I grew up in the day of, I watched these last couple decades, Michael Phelps just dominate in his field. We today look at that and go, wow, Michael Phelps is an amazing swimmer, an amazing athlete. In their day, it was connected less uh, to the individual talent and more to the God you represented. 
from what evidence we have about the games, we can piece together a pretty good picture of how things went down at these games. Though it's certainly been done with some liberty. I'm got, what I'm about ready to do, I, I, I received from my teacher, Ray, for sure. And, and I, there, there's been some liberty taken on his account, and there's going to be some liberty taken on my account uh, to make the most sense of this history. Because um, it's not like we found an ancient, you know, program hiding in the bleachers of one of the ancient arenas to exactly how the you know the olympic games went down but you get the idea that would be convenient it would be wouldn't it so so we're weaving this together but many of these pieces will be found in all those books that we already mentioned at the beginning of our study in revelation people like stother and roland worth and all that so what follows brent is a general outline of how they would open the olympic games and if you're taking notes uh we didn't give you a presentation here because Maybe writing these down might, might help it actually stick in your memory a little bit better. Number one, step number one. There is, this is in the Olympic Games. Uh, the Olympic Games begin with the presentation of the emperor. All right? In the Roman world, Caesar enters the arena to the acclaim of all those who are gathered in the stands. You can picture like the opening ceremonies of today's Olympics. Here is Caesar. Number two, step number two. There is a herald who gives announcements. The emperor was almost always introduced uh, by the, the recitation of his mighty deeds and accomplishments. This long scroll uh, where, where this, this herald would read about all the things that Caesar has done this year. Think about the, politi- the, the way that pol- politicians use the State of the Union address. Uh, step number three. So step number one is presentation of the emperor. Step number two is the herald's announcements. Step number three is Caesar's pronouncements. Caesar would take the opportunity to speak with the cities and the regions that were represented at the games. The pronouncements often followed a typical outline. I have heard of your positive traits, uh, but I have this against you. And he would talk about the negative traits. He might say to Philippi, I have heard about the way that you paid all of your taxes on time this year, how you sent me uh, many soldiers for, for battle and for our armies, for Rome's great agenda. But I have this against you. You haven't expanded your economy. Therefore, I will do this if you don't fix that in this coming year. Number four, step number four, is there would be a large chorus that would sing the imperial praise song that we've already looked at before. Usually those, uh, uh, those 24 priests uh, could be involved with this that we've talked about before. The crowd dressed in white robes. Uh, that was the accepted attire, by the way. To attend the Olympic Games, you were dressed in white. So you can imagine a whole arena. We would call it whiting out the arena today in our sports context. But a whole arena dressed in white robes. Uh, they, they would sing. They would be led by the 24 priests of the 24 legal Roman religions that we already talked about earlier. And then uh, step number five, the games would officially be opened. Another herald would read a scroll, again extolling the greatness of the gods and Caesar, King of kings and God most high. This ushered in the beginning of the competition. Step number six, the first event was always the chariot races. The chariot races. As far as we can tell, the first event was always the same at every games and served as more of a ritual or a ceremonial event to kick off the games in an actual competition. The chariot races would be the same color of horses. The the, the color of horses, according to history and the records that we do have, appear to be consistent at each event. Black horse, a white horse, red horses, and then chariots pulled by spotted or pale horses. 
Finally, uh, the last step would be trumpets. The trumpets would sound, and the opening ceremonies are complete, and the games begin. Now I'll read through those again. The presentation of the emperor, number one. Number two, the herald's announcements. Number three, Caesar's pronouncements. Number four, the chorus sings the imperial praise song. Number five, the games are opened. Number six, the chariot races. And number seven, the trumpets. This is how they opened the Olympic Games. So let the games begin. For our astute listeners here that are thinking critically, you have probably already noticed that the opening nine chapters of Revelation are laid out by John exactly like the opening to the Olympic Games. Follow me back through these seven steps. Number one, the presentation of the emperor. If you were to look at Revelation 1, 1a, let's call it the first half of Revelation, you're going to see that God is presented as the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. Step number two is you're going to have the herald's announcements. The second part of Revelation chapter 1, John hears a voice telling him to write down what he sees, the greatness of God. Step number three is Caesar's pronouncements. Revelation 2 and 3 is the seven letters to the seven churches that follow the general, format, the, the general format that we talked about earlier. I've heard about your positive traits, but I have this against you. That same format used exactly in the letters. Step number four was that the chorus sings the imperial praise. We'll look at Revelation 4 and maybe even Revelation 7. The crowd of Revelation dressed in white robes, singing, led by 24 elders. Step number five, those games are opened. Compare that to Revelation chapter five. The slain lamb is found worthy to open the scroll with seven seals, a scroll with writing on both sides. Finally, uh, step number six, not finally, but step number six would be those chariot races. In Revelation chapter six, the horses and chariots appear with all the colors to match exactly what the reader would expect. And finally, Brent, you just read it. What did you read about today? Step number seven. The trumpets. The trumpets sound and the games begin. What does all of this mean? It means that John is writing his apocalyptic vision against the backdrop, the backdrop of the Olympic Games. In a very real sense, the reader who sees this would understand what John is saying. We find ourselves in a great Olympic competition. Who is going to win? Throughout his writing, it seems that the enemy... This is going to be Rome, it's going to be Babylon, it's going to be the beast, the dragon, etc. There's always going to be this opponent, has the upper hand. The book does not dance around the very real persecution and apparent defeat that the original readers are struggling through. But just as my teacher told me when I learned about this in Turkey, I think John is saying something more. He's saying that the way we conduct, I'm going to slow down with this, Brent, because I, I, this is important to me. John is saying that the way we conduct ourselves in the world, in the midst of persecution, is how we tell the world what our God is like. If the games were an opportunity to put your God on display, then the struggle that we endure is our opportunity to do the same. The way we persevere, the way we overcome, the way that we run, the way that we run our race is what will tell the world who our God is. And, and we might be reminded of the words we studied back in Hebrews. You got a passage from Hebrews there, Brent, from chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That we might run our race in the great Olympic Games well. Some good context there for the book of Revelation, Brent. We're going to have to keep moving next episode. Sounds good. Uh, if you have any any thoughts, um, any questions, be sure to get in touch with us. Go to baymodisciplesub.com. There's all sorts of ways to get in touch there. Uh, join the Baymoss Slack. Discuss it with some other listeners as well. There's lots of stuff to dig into here. So thanks for joining us on the Baymoss Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.